it was powerful. I have to say there was some energy. And I think I, it was a suchness experience for me, Ian. I mean, I only put those words to it now. At the time, I don't think I would have. But the four qualities of suchness, intimate, immediate, spontaneous, and obvious. And I know, I felt that there was, um, it was like a container that kept me. The other folks, the actual room, the Buddha, it just held my whole body, mind, attention. Haju Sunim began studying with her teacher Samu Sunim in 1976 in Toronto. In 1982, she moved into the Ann Arbor Buddhist Temple and was ordained as a priest in 1989. Haju Sunim was given Dharma transmission by Samu Sunim in 1999. In the 1990s, interested in involving entire families in an integrated Buddhist life, she helped launch the temple's Peace Camp, an annual six-day retreat which draws people from around the world. She continues to teach at the Ann Arbor Buddhist Temple, a residential community that has just expanded its facilities to accommodate students of the way who are seeking a more immersive practice life. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. We have launched a study group for people interested in gaining a deeper understanding of the sutras and scriptures most important to the Zen tradition, and listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are able to try a month for only $7 by using the promo code SBB when you sign up. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org slash studygroup. So, Haju, thank you so much for coming on you actually were were recommended to me by a couple of different people people who write in to the show and one of the people who wrote me was a guy who's been going to this to your peace camp for 6 years or so and he was really impressed with sort of your efforts and your intentions of trying to involve families in buddhist practice i think a lot of sanghas are very adult focused and well, he just found your approach very family-oriented. And if you could say a little bit about the peace camp and where that came from and, and how that sort of manifested as uh, bringing families into the idea of a Buddhist lifestyle. I myself have raised two daughters at the temple. Mm. Actually, we started peace camp in the 80s, I'm pretty sure, when my oldest daughter, who's now 35, was just a babe in arms and her sister a little older. And my teacher, Venerable Samasunam, said to me, you should start a peace camp for the kids. And so that summer, 
uh, he was in residence upstairs in our original building, we had 12 little kids. And a member of our Toronto temple uh, came here to Ann Arbor with her two daughters. And uh, I had two. And they were, it was kind of like the first peace camp was almost a toddler peace camp. <laughs> we had our hands full, you know, mm. just cooking and program. And it, it was a day camp. So people came and then went home uh, each morning. And um, then it developed, um, I happened to go out to uh, a Quaker uh, nature preserve near Ann Arbor and became friends with a woman who was a member and went camping there with her. And at that point, I thought that we should maybe go out and camp at this lake for peace camp and make it overnight for five days. And we did, we did it. And we did that for uh, about 15, maybe almost 20 years and just grew bigger and bigger and bigger and had people coming from many parts of the country with their children. And we had programs for all ages, so early morning practice for adults. And then when the kids got up, well, we the day unfolded with all age group programs. And this place, the Quaker uh, Preserve, was just too small for us at that point. So we went looking for another facility, which we've, we were to have been our third year there. It's a great camp about half an hour north of Ann Arbor. And oh my gosh, we've had the most wonderful camps at that place. We just needed to expand. And Ian, you know what I think is one of the great things is that we've had in our programs, not just camp, but in the programs that we have for children and families, some now teenagers who've been all the way since they were toddlers and beyond. It's, it's just a delight to have them and to have them so, I'm going to pick the word smitten with camp, but they really like to be together with each other and they really like the programs. In fact, last summer at the end of peace camp, we had a big council with those teenagers to, uh, they had some complaints. They thought the programming was not, um, they needed more programming, is what they And um, they had some complaints about other aspects of camp where they felt adults had not respected their space. And it was a wonderful thing to see them feeling such a sense of loving the camp that they had to speak up to make it better. And so that's how it kind of evolved, that just from these two moms with a bunch of toddlers in the backyard just sort of putting it together, to now a camp which is actually run by a committee, a wonderful committee of very dedicated and talented members of the temple. Several of them are in our training programs, so it's good to see. And I don't spend so much time with being in the kitchen, cooking, organizing everything. They do that. And some of them say that it's the best week of their life because they've not experienced community like that in any other place. Would you have a question specific that you'd like me to speak more on? Well, in a a lot of ways, Buddhism is a religion of 
sort of converts in the United States. Most of us aren't raised Buddhist. We come to it a little bit later in life. And when I was listening or I was reading this email that came in that was from this uh, a listener who wanted me to, to talk to you, it really was about the family for him, about being able to take this path that had become so important to him, but also finding a way for it to translate into his whole family. And so it seems like these kids who are now taking ownership for the camp, like for their whole lives, they have, you know, somehow identify as Buddhist, which I think is probably quite unique for people who aren't immigrants from another country here in the United States. Just curious about the family, how families develop as Buddhists here. Well, you know, for camp, we don't just have the kids and we don't just have the families. We have every single age group and everybody, the, the families come and we camp in tents. And we actually, everybody takes a turn in the cooking. All the programs are conducted by the campers, all the cleanup, everything is um, done together. And we have a tremendous amount of fun. You know, the kids even feel like it's the best week of the year because we have, um, yeah, it's about community building. And these days, I think a lot of us don't have a, a strong community connection as a family, you know, where this is the case mm -hmm. uh, with our peace camp. And we do have other programs, like during the year, we have regular monthly programs where everyone comes for services and then breaks up into groups according to their age and adults too. So there's an adult discussion Dharma group. And we have a, a program called ZAM, which is like the OWL program. You told me you were a Unitarian minister. Do you know the sexuality program in the Unitarian Church called OWL? Yes. Mm -hmm. We converted it. Uh, into uh, a Zen Buddhist program. No kidding. And we call it, we call it ZAM. I love that. What does the ZAM stand for? Does it stand for anything? Zen Awakening Minds. Wow. And it's for teenagers. And um, the woman who did the transformation, she and a, a couple of others went to the training that Unitarian Church offers. And then we came back and we worked with our priests and to transform the content to make it more Buddhist oriented. And um, we, we've had it going, I bet, for about five or six years now. And right now, some of our teenagers in this past group, which had to stop because of the pandemic of them coming here, but they're still doing it online, are coming from Chicago. And that's often the case because we have teenagers who go to camp who are from Chicago and Wisconsin, same. Yeah. The OWL or our, our whole lives, that program is so, I mean, it's one of the, I think the best programs just in terms of, you know, where we are in the United States as it relates to sexuality, but, mm -hmm. you know, just in teaching people how to love themselves. I, I am so happy to hear that it's been translated with a Zen perspective. That's really amazing. It's it's really fun. To, we have these teenagers that come from uh, all these different places once a month, and we have this new building, which I'm in right now, 
And they just love this new building. I mean, in a way, we made the building so that more people and more programs could be possible for all ages. So I don't want to get the idea that, well, this place is just for families and teenagers, because we have a lot of other programs as well. But um, not right now. During the pandemic, we don't have everything going, but we have a little um, nutshell of offerings. And one of the things that got revived just about three weeks ago was the ZAM, because we got in touch with the kids and every single one of them said, yes, we want to keep going. It was actually a really powerful program for me when I took it all those years ago. So Mm -hmm. amazing. And it sort of brings me to this next, well, when I was thinking about your teaching and your own journey, I mean, you've been living in community. I mean, you've been living at the the Ann Arbor Zen Center since the early 80s. And so you've been living in community for for decades now. It just seems – so I live in community here in Cambridge, uh, the Cambridge Zen Center, and there's a lot of wonderful things about living in a Buddhist community and, and a lot of things that are very – well, it just shows you your karma very well. <laughs> But you, you know, you've really stuck with this, and I'm wondering how this commitment to community has, how it shaped your understanding of of the Buddhist way, and also how you teach. I have to say that the first time I turned up to a Buddhist temple, it wasn't that I was so interested in Buddhism and Zen. I mean, I was. I had trained as a yoga teacher, and I had grown up in the Anglican Church in Canada. So there was something in my bones that kept pointing myself in a direction of a little more of this and a little more of that. So I turned up on the back of a motorcycle to this little temple about 5 a.m. in the morning, mainly because my boyfriend was interested. <laughs> and, I was, <laughs> and I was interested in him. But the first time I sat at that time, it, it wasn't the first time that I had done any meditation because I learned to meditate in the yoga tradition as well. But in the Zen tradition, it was from eleven, from five a.m. to eleven a.m. with a a break for a little chanting and a little talk from the teacher, but mainly it was sitting for that many hours. And I had not done anything like that in yoga in my or in any other place where I had been sitting. I mean, this was like an introduction to Buddhism. You know, who gets six hours introduction sitting facing the wall? <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a pretty intense introduction. But it was, for me, in it was... Very compelling. I felt like I was home. Mm. I felt like it was so interesting to sit facing the wall as the sun rose. And there was a spider plant on the windowsill, which got the shadow of it changed as the sun, well, as the earth moved and the sunshine shadow changed. And so I sat through that. And it was, um, a beautiful experience for me. And afterwards, uh, we met with Venerable Samasunam, and he said, 
how was it? We sat down around a little table and uh, my boyfriend said, excruciating. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't say anything because it hadn't been like that for me. Mm. And he said, well, what have you been doing? And my boyfriend said, well, we've been doing yoga. And Sunam said, oh, that's yoga. That's not sitting. Mm. I mean, we could dispute that today. And I'm like, <laughs> we eventually left Toronto. We helped Sunam establish a temple um, for residents in Toronto because he had been living in a little apartment in the basement on Markham Street there. And um, we renovated that temple. And then eventually he wanted to have a temple in the U.S. So we traveled a few times down into Michigan and decided on on Ann Arbor as the location. We didn't have a building, but we rented an apartment. And eventually a building was purchased. And I, in those early years, was on a pilgrimage to Korea with Sunam. And when I came back, my daughter and I, my oldest daughter, moved into the temple. We all moved to take care of the temple in Ann Arbor. And um, during those first two or three years, I had a, another daughter. And um, actually, my husband left. He had uh, different things that he wanted to do and uh, other um, interests in women. And so I. So you stayed though uh, with these two daughters? Yeah, and I stayed. And um, Sunam asked me, you know, to be the director of the temple up until that time. I had been, and well, of course, I continued for many years to take care of the the girls and to um, do a lot of the kitchen because that's what I could do with kids around a lot. And right. And then. when their dad left, we then he asked me, Sunam asked me to be the director of the temple, and I was ordained as a Dharma teacher. And well, you said some of the things over the years. And so I had to figure out how to, you know, run a temple, <laughs> you know. Right. So I went back to Vancouver. And I visited several Buddhist groups, and especially one, a Tibetan group that had a children's program. So I got some ideas from other groups about what they were doing. This was in seminal times when not much was happening in Zen groups with families or kids. I, I, st- I, don't, I still think of there not being that much. I mean, it's really quite remarkable. It's like you had these two young daughters, and the whole temple sort of gets this you have to build it because you've got these two daughters there. Yeah. So once we just cobbled together some, some things and a wonderful fellow came along who was um, uh, just a very good musician and character and very talented. And he came up with a lot of Buddhist songs. We sang and we raised children and we went to camp and we had a big garden and we had yard sales because we were always, you know, trying to bring the pennies together to pay the mortgage. There was mm. always a mortgage, you know. I worked um, for a while in a little Chinese restaurant just on the corner from the temple for probably a year. And then when uh, my husband left, then I 
came back to the temple and tried to see how the temple could earn to. And so over many years, um, just working on that and building community. If, if there is something that's in kind of the way I am, Ian, is that everyone counts. And so we've had just a wonderful group of characters over the years who come to stay at the temple and who've been our members and our trainees. And I always try to be open to all, all of them, their foibles and their characteristics. I think almost it's kind of my strength and my weakness because sometimes I haven't called shit shit when I needed to, you know. But I've always been of the spirit that everything is workable and that all we have to give is a little more attention, a little more care. And we can figure these things out. So we have pulled off things when you would think nobody could have done it because as, what's her name? Sociologist, anthropologist, Margaret Mead. Mead. Said, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... um. It's quite wonderful what a small group of dedicated people can do. And I would say that that's the same for my teacher, Venerable Samasunam, who's at our New York temple right now and who's suffering from Parkinson's disease. So he is basically retired. But Mm. my goodness, was he a force to be reckoned with, you know, an orphan from Korea? who came over, and now we have five fully functioning temples in Canada, U.S., and Mexico. So I think sort of the question for me that I'm just curious about, it's, it's really not about you. It's sort of like you've been living in a community for 40 years. And in the center of this community, this is more than, than a commune, right, or some sort of uh, co-op living situation, there's practice at the center. So how does this community inform the journey? So we have these people who are residents of the temple. Sometimes it's just been me. Sometimes it's been five, seven, 15, 13. And we also have membership. It's hard to define the membership sometimes, but somewhere around 125. And then we have a whole lot of people that are not formal members, but are connected with the temple in many ways. So we offer a practice container for all of those people. This place serves as a a Buddhist temple. It has marriage ceremonies, memorial ceremonies, funeral ceremonies, blessing services, etc. And it serves as a a monastery. So we have people who want to do full-time training. We also have other training. So people can become Dharma teachers and priests. And that is a very vigorous program. And we are like a Buddhist community center. So we have like three functions that are going on so that a whole spectrum of people can be involved. And so that's open to all our members. And then we have some special um, public services on Sundays that are open to the public. And volunteering is open to the public. This is a volunteer organization. So we are really dependent on um, 
people who come to volunteer. And we usually those are a lot of our training students, people who are very committed. But lots of times we have people from the community who just want to be a part of a, a community. And they'll, you know, can I come and help in the garden? You know, I'm I'm a painter. Do you have painting I could do? You know, that kind of thing. So we create this culture, kind of a practice container, a place of training. That's what we're particularly stressing right now. And people come. And people go, of course. You know, there's a lot of coming and going. You know my favorite song these days? No, what is it? <laughs> it's um I'll sing it to you, it's just short. No coming, no going, no after, no before. I hold you close to me. I release you to be so free because I am in you. And you are in me because I am in you, and you are in me. Actually, that's our camp song, too. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that sounds like something we'd sing at the Unitarians as well. Well, I think we got it from Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, oh, yeah, he does do a lot of songs. Yeah. yeah. I actually really appreciate that about his sangha. There's sort of a real, you know, they embrace the traditional, but also have created a lot of these new new vehicles. Yeah. Well, one of the vehicles that, speaking of that, is that we last, when was it? Last year and about five years ago, Thich Nhat Hanh's monks and nuns came through Ann Arbor and they stayed at the temple and we got to know mm. them a little bit. And uh, one of them came back last year because he was visiting some of Ty's groups in in the state of Michigan, around Michigan, and uh, he stayed at the temple. And at that time, I thought to ask him, would he please, would he be interested in coming to stay for a little while in our new building as we're opening it up and seeing how we can work with it? And he said, for how long? And I said, well, maybe a month. And he said, how about six months? I said, I should talk with our Dharma master. It's the person who has succeeded Venerable Samasunam. And I talked with him. And over time, we said, yes, let's welcome him. So we have had um, Brother Fu staying with us since January. And a lot of times when things are not so clear how we can deal with situations. He's lived in larger monasteries for some time, and he's able to bring some of the ceremonies like beginning anew, which we've needed, a, a kind of how to troubleshoot in the community and how to work really tenderly and effectively with uh, issues that come up. So I'm really grateful for having that resource. I've always had a lookout, and I've got the books. I've got so many of Thich Nhat Hanh's books, but I not always have how they evolve into embodiment in a community, you know? And so Brother Fat Bu has helped us with a couple of those. He 
you know, keeps out of it. He's not trying to take over leadership in any way, he said. And, uh, but he is um, kind of to, here to be of service for a few more months before he goes on to teach somewhere else. You know what? I just keep hearing this embrace of, you know, so you come out of a Korean lineage and Samu Sanam was, I, my understanding, he, he was a monastic, right? And then entered into a sort of householder life and then sort of transformed the direction of the school that you're now all in. But there's there just seems to be this really openness to renovation and and embracing new threads to deliver the Dharma. You know, I love the fact that you called it embodied, you know, the the sort of embodiment of the path. Well, I think the most important aspect of our Dharma around here is our Korean tradition, for sure. I mean, it's such a beautiful, earthy tradition. Mm-hmm. It's the core. We, I want to keep it that way. And I encourage all the students and our teachers to do that as well. But unfortunately, we didn't get much training in, in Korea. And a lot of times we haven't done as much training in the Korean tradition personally as we should have and really been up to snuff with it. So whereas there may have been some forms that were useful in the Korean tradition, we ha- I, I have turned for help from other traditions and so from Thich Nhat Hanh's work. And, yeah, I'm open. I I am a member of the American Zen Teachers Association, and so I hear from a lot of the teachers. For instance, dear um, Stringe, who you talked to recently, I mean, yeah. I always read her newsletters, and I always see what she's doing because she's a marvelous teacher, and she's so bright. And so I... I, it's just a pleasure for me to see, and sometimes I think, huh, that's a good idea that they're doing at the monastery. Maybe we should emphasize that a little bit here. I'm a patchworked quilt. <laughs> you know, I'm really just an ordinary, pretty ordinary, and, and so I cannot claim to be sort of some genuine different person, but I have cobbled together. Um, in Sunam's style, he's really a cobbling together to make things work. And I think I picked that up. It's clearly a successful path. I did the sort of little video tour of the renovations of, you know, what you've been doing with the temple. And the renovations are pretty substantial. It's I'm, I was really quite impressed. And so the vision that's being held there, not just by you, but Whenever something like that is happening, there are so many other people involved that there clearly is something very special happening. Well, That's how I read it. Yeah. How grateful I am to have ended up doing this because in high school, I could never have career planned for something like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What would the career plan be? I'm going to be an abbot of a temple. <laughs> It was, it was just teacher. not one of the choices. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you were a good little Anglican girl in BC. Yeah. Who turned up on a motorcycle behind her boyfriend one day. 
Yeah. Now, I do want to go back to that first um, sort of five-hour sit or six-hour sit. You know, you said you felt, I can't remember exactly what you said, but I think you said you felt at home or you felt just very comfortable in that. And a lot of people have a hard time sitting for half an hour. So what was it that really hit you in that in that first sit that made you want to come back again? Over the years, I've, I've found, at that time, you know, I'd done yoga. So it wasn't difficult for me to sit physically, you know. And um, during those several hours, there was just, there was initially another young man. I don't know where he went because he wasn't there at the end. And my partner and myself and Sunam. So there were three of us. And there was some, it was powerful. I have to say there was some energy. And I think I... It was a suchness experience for me, Ian. I mean, I only put those words to it now. At the time, I don't think I would have. But the four qualities of suchness, intimate, immediate, spontaneous, and obvious. And I know I felt that. there was. Um, it was like a container that kept me. The other folks the actual room, the Buddha, it just held my whole body, mind, attention that morning. Yeah. So the next thing we did was a 10-day Young Men Junction. That was the next thing you did? The next thing we did. <laughs> In those days, you know, it seems like... You did kind of stuff like that. Yeah. And then um, after that, Sunam said, it's time for you to take the meditation course. And I remember saying, but I've already done all this stuff. Yeah. Well, I already know. How. No, you you need to take the meditation course, the beginner's course. And yeah, so so we did. We lived out of town at that point, and we'd come in every week to take this meditation course. And um, so it unfolded. And I think I took that course with Sunam maybe 10 times over oh. the years with him before I eventually began to teach it myself. And did you take it over and over again because you were assisting him or there was just a new level to it every time that you, you took it? You got it. There was a new level to it. That's, that's what life is like, Ian. You know, when we learn how to use our hearts and minds, it's always getting deeper. You know, I like the expression, always opening Buddha's eyes, always opening Buddha's eyes, always opening Buddha's heart, always opening Buddha's heart, and mind and hands. There's a deepening process when we begin to immerse ourselves in these practices. Ordinary things become extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all around. And there's nowhere to go. So one of the things that I do with people a lot is I go for a walk with them. 
I mean, we do sit together, of course, and we have meetings and we have the most wonderful breakfast discussions after a period of silence. But one of the things that's truly very ordinary yet very special is just going for a walk with various members. These days I seem to walk and talk on the phone. Have you ever done that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because, you know, we're just going for a walk, it's really about suchness often. I mean, we don't just talk about intellectual things. My, mainly I want to listen to people. I can't do very much unless I do a lot of listening. So I really speak until I've heard and heard and heard. And then when I speak, it's usually to ask another question. I had this wonderful experience that taught me a lot about two months ago. I have a daughter who lives in Buffalo. Her name is Gomani. Uh, Sunam gave her that name. She's pretty spunky. She's got two little kids. One is uh, Violet, who's just about one on June 10th, and the other is Azure, who's just about three on June 17th. And, um, oh, my gosh, she's been a businesswoman and working, and all of a sudden, I mean, she won the kids, got kids, and it's been really challenging. And so I would phone her around 5, 5.30 each day before evening practice and after I'd had a bowl of soup or while I was having a bowl of soup and we'd do FaceTime. And I would see her in the kitchen and she would be, if her husband wasn't around, it was really kind of a struggle. The kids were crazy and wild and all over the place. <laughs> and she would be trying to take care of the kids and prepare a meal and you know, just kind of survive. And so I would say to her, Gomone, honey, you know, I think you need to just pay attention to the kids and getting their supper ready. And I think I should go right now. And she said, no, mom, I want you to witness this. (laughs) And I said, huh. Yeah. Uh, Almost without missing since then, I, I phone and we we talk a very little because she's so busy with the kids, but I watch and she'll turn to see if I'm watching. And how have they ever come a long way? It's, it shows me the possibility of when there's an issue, people have such resources that they don't even realize. My daughter, uh, you know, just spent a lot of time at the beginning being very frustrated. Yeah, it wasn't changing for a long time, but then she really put some effort in to um, trying herself to get exercise and get time, working with her husband more carefully, doing research on how to work with these little kids. And now when I witness, and lots of times I just sit there watching at a screen, they're getting better. It's lovely. You know, so my input isn't so important as just listening and watching and witnessing is what I found in almost every corner of my life. I was just writing this piece about what it means to be a minister as a Unitarian minister. And so much of it is the listening and witnessing. And what a blessing that is. But really, so much of the job is just that. Well, 
how can we really respond and harmonize with the situation unless we know it as deeply as we can? Especially, you know, when we've walked in somebody's shoes, when I've been a mother, now I'm a grandmother, you know, we, when we have the firsthand experience, of course, that's what our Zen practice is all about. So when we're with people, we have to kind of really witness. Thanks to my daughter saying, no, mom, I want you to be a witness. <laughs> She's the one that grew up in the temple. That's interesting, eh? Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Haju Sunim encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting zenbuddhisttemple.org. And if you'd like to learn more about residential possibilities in the newly expanded temple, you can email anarborzentemple at gmail.com. And I'll put links for both of those in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quanum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are able to try a month of the Zen Study Group for only $7 when using the promo code SBB. The study group offers a close reading of the sutras and scriptures most important to the Zen tradition. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org slash studygroup. And don't forget to use the promo code SBB when you check out. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week. Thank you.